page 820 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of God. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. 
And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The grass withers, the flower fades. Amen. Let's pray. What a heart you have, Lord Jesus, and it is our only confidence now as uh, we come to your word. We don't trust our own hearts. Uh, We don't rely on our own hearts. Uh, We are banking every one of our hopes now and our desires uh, on your heart, the riches of your heart. And so we ask now that for those already your people, you would open up uh, the storehouse of your goodness and feed us and do that by sending the Holy Spirit to show us more of your glory. And we pray for those not yet your people that you would open again the storehouse of your rich heart for sinners and that you would act savingly this morning in their lives. Make this, we pray, Lord, the day of their salvation. And we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, I know, I know. Uh, after uh, five weeks in chapter 14 and about 10 in chapter 13, uh, what kind of pluck does it take to think we can get through chapter 15 in one week? Well, I don't know what kind of pluck it takes, but I want you to know at least why we're going to try. And there are two reasons for that. And the first is that uh, we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together today. And the Lord's Supper is a meal which Jesus has given to his church until he comes again. Why? He's given us this meal so that the truth about him will be known by his people. The truth about his welcome and the truth about his work. The truth, the table tells us the true story of Jesus' welcome the welcome by which or in which he embraces sinners because everyone who comes to this table, according to Jesus' command, is a sinner who by definition is not self-sustaining and is dependent upon the grace of God. And there is a welcome 
that is opened up to the people of Christ through this table. And this just stands as a witness that the Jesus Christ who presides over history is the welcomer of sinners. And that welcome is not just because there's a soft spot on his heart. It's based, it's not just a purely subjective emotional thing that disregards the truth about our sin and rebellion against God. No, that welcome is based upon his work. And that's the other thing that the, the other aspect of him that this table tells the truth about, his work in dying uh, for sinners, that welcome that he extends uh, and opens wide to the entire world cost him everything. And he was willing to give it. It's amazing. So his table's a gift. Jesus uses this meal uh, to display and reveal the truth about who he is, both in his welcome of sinners and his work for sinners. And you know what's interesting about the three? There are three main chunks or episodes in chapter 15. And in each of those, so it's the, his exchange with the Pharisees, his exchange with the Canaanite woman, uh, and his feeding of the 4,000. And what's interesting is that the, the key kind of gospel hinge in each one of those episodes turns on... Uh, an issue of hospitality or an image of hospitality with the Pharisees, right? What's the triggering issue? Hey, your disciples don't wash their hands before they what? Eat. Uh, The Canaanite woman, what is the hinge? Even the dogs, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. Ah, the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then the feeding of the 4,000. And I think what, there's a parallel this morning, especially on a morning when we're celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper together. It seems very appropriate to be thinking about how Jesus uses these uh, same three exchanges, which all center in, in one sense or another on meals. He uses hospitality and table fellowship in, in our chapter as a means for revealing the truth about himself. What is it that... What, how does somebody get welcomed by Jesus Christ? On what basis do you gain God's acceptance and approval through Jesus Christ? That is the most important question that any human being could ever ask, that the human brain could ever be spent thinking about. On what basis is it possible to have God's acceptance and approval and welcome? That's the central question of the gospel, and it is the question that is spread out over all of Matthew 15. And Jesus answers it in three parts, I think. He tells us two ways that we don't gain it, and the only way that we do. It's not because of our record, not our achievement. It's not because, of our, because it's our right. We have no right to the welcome of God in Jesus Christ. So it's not a matter of our entitlement, but it is only because of the unwillingness of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain what that means when we get there. But let's look first at the the first uh, grounds or basis that Jesus takes away, if you will. Uh, We're not welcomed on the basis of our record. And that's really, I think, the, the thrust of his exchange with the Pharisees and his uh, debriefing with his disciples and the people in verses 1 through 20. 
And this is the first and most wonderful thing about the gospel that is clarified in our passage. That Jesus, and it's this, that Jesus Christ's welcome is never, never based on our records and is always based uh, apart from our records. In other words, it's always in spite of our records, not because of our records that we receive the welcome of Jesus Christ. Friends, the gospel always begins with a work of demolition. Always. God comes in with the message of his son's work and he demolishes all basis for false hope that our hearts just cling to with such tenacity. And he does that demolition work so that he can establish true hope for us. And in his confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem, Jesus utterly demolishes the fondest, I think this is perhaps the fondest, and at the same time the falsest hope of the human heart. He utterly demolishes that hope. What's that hope? That hope is this, that somehow... It is possible, we believe, we want to believe that somehow it would be possible for us as human beings to amass, acquire, develop, perform, or reform ourselves in such a way that we assemble a moral record on our own that we present to God by which we obtain and then maintain God's approval. That is the fondest hope of the human heart since the Garden of Eden, and it is the falsest and most perilous hope of the human heart. It's in every single heart in this room, including mine. It dies so hard, it will not die in full until the last day. And it is the hope cherished by the Pharisees. Jesus' exchange with the Pharisees reminds us that conversion is not about redecorating your life. It's not even about remodeling your life. A Christian conversion is a scrape job. The Pharisees, um, you know, they ought to know by now. Uh, But when you you throw Jesus a fastball... He's going to hit it hard right back. And they bite off way more than they can chew when they essentially charge him with being a false teacher. But they do it because they're cowards. They do it by uh, kind of whining about his disciples. And they say, hey, 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 hey. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands before they eat? Which, of course, is not required of anyone except priests by the law. Jesus doesn't answer their question uh, except to charge them uh, very aggressively. And he turns the tables on them very aggressively. Do you notice this? He says, why are you asking me about the tradition of the elders? It's you. You should be much more concerned about the fact, uh, Mr. Religious Guy, Mr. Read Your Bible Every Day, 
That's what the Pharisees were. They were fundamentalists. There's a lot about the Pharisees that we have in common with them. They took the word of God seriously. They took a living. They took, they, they took the life that you live before God, informed by God's commandments. They took that very seriously. They just drew the wrong lesson from it. And Jesus says, do you understand that you are breaking the commandment of God, that, that you actually are using the law to break the law because you're looking for a loophole? You don't keep the fifth commandment. You, the way you evade keeping the fifth commandment is you say to your mother and father, well, I can't help you with that money or that property because I've dedicated it to God. I can't break my promise to God knowing full well that it's likely that the parents will die before they ever have to. What they've done is they've just segregated their property away from ever having to care for their parents, and they've done it in the name of the law. See, that's what a loophole is. It's using the law to escape the law. It is incredibly perverse. And that's why, and these are the really religious guys. These aren't the tax collectors and the prostitutes. These are the, these are the guys who pray every day, who read their Bible. And Jesus says, you're breaking the commandments of God. You guys are false worshipers. You've, you've made the word of God void. You're hypocrites. You, you talk a good talk, right? But your heart is far from God. So on the outside, you're just like a shell. On the outside, you have all this religiosity going on, but you're using it for camouflage because what you really want to do is you want to camouflage the, the way in which you're withholding your heart. You know what? You, you, you take God for a fool when you do that. He calls them false teachers. He says, you're blind guides. Now think about that expression. A blind guide. Well, number one, we can say a lot of things about that, right? Number one, not a very good guide. Number two, very proud guide. Somebody blind, presuming to be a teacher, this is about spiritual pride and the danger of it. If there were a bus on the side of the road going to where you wanted to go, and you got in and you saw that the driver of the bus was blind, would you stay on the bus? Of course not. But he goes even further, Jesus does, with his disciples. When he debriefs with his disciples, they come to him, and you know, probably they're, they're a little intimidated by this uh, delegation from Jerusalem, and they say, do you know, when you said what you said in verse 12 about how it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of the man that defiles him, do you know that Pharisees were offended by that? And Jesus says something very strong. He says, every plant that my heavenly Father is not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They're blind guides. In other words, they're imposters. They don't know God. They don't know my Father. They presume to speak for Him, but they misrepresent Him. They don't know what they're talking about. Leave them alone. Very serious. What explains this, the strength of Jesus' reaction? I mean, they just ask him, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? And he comes back with, you know, a force 12 a tornado. Why? Because what the Pharisees, their question is the tip of an iceberg, 
a very deadly iceberg, an iceberg, if you will, of their worldview, a moralistic iceberg. Jesus comes back so strong because these are people who are holding themselves out as authoritative representatives for God, and yet Jesus knows that they are spiritually naive tinkerers. That's all they are. They don't understand the real issues of the human heart. They're nothing but moralists. And you know what a moralist is? A moralist is somebody who thinks that on the basis of their own keeping of the rules or living a good life or obeying what they think the law of God is, that their own conduct is sufficient to obtain and maintain God's approval. And you may not have known that your heart was a moralistic heart, but every human heart is, because every human heart knows deep down within it there's a witness of the covenant of works that was inscribed on Adam's heart when he was made, and we know that that covenant of works has been broken. And apart from the gospel, we are controlled by the need to vindicate ourselves, to earn our way into things. Now, does this sound familiar? Just think about the last time somebody said you didn't measure up. Why that hurts so bad? Because deep down, your heart is convinced and persuaded that you have to vindicate yourself. That's a gospel-less kind of thinking. And Jesus is very strong here because he is wanting to make sure that his disciples understand that in a moralistic frame of reference, at best, the most that you are, the highest thing that you can ever be is a spiritually naive tinkerer. Because a moralist has shallow views of sin, shallow views of God, and, shallow, and a very high views of their own heart all put together. The Pharisees, like every moralist, have a very shallow view of sin. They have an outside-in view of sin. We talked about this back in December. right? They have an outside-in view of sin in which they, they live in the world and they functionally assume that the main threats to our purity, the main threats to our holiness are out here, not in here. That the point of the, of the, of the spiritual life is to protect our hearts from the world when in reality we need to protect the world from our hearts. It's exactly the reverse. Jesus is going to teach, and he does in verses 17 through 20, not an outside-in view of sin, but an inside-out view of sin. Not a, a view of sin that is just based on our behavior, but a view of sin that says something about our nature, who we are, that sin much more deeply than what we do before it is ever about what we do. Jesus teaches us that sin is about who we are. See, but the Pharisees are, this is why the Pharisees are fixated on the washing of the hands. They think the threat's out here. And all moralism works this way. It looks at rules and says, the rules are my protection. And therefore, sin in our lives becomes what is essentially a management problem. I just have to manage my behavior. I just got to color between the lines. But what if sin was darker and deeper than our doing? What if what sin really is, 
is about who we are. What if we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners? That's exactly what Jesus is teaching. Look at verses 17 through 20. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person? Whoa! That means the problem, Jesus is saying the problem is located inside of us, not outside of us. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. You notice how he's flattened all those sins out? They all come from the same place. Gossip comes from exactly the same place that adultery comes from. Uh, Telling a lie on your income tax form comes from exactly the same source as mass murders. The human heart. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. In other words, don't you dare be a tinkerer with the reality of sin. This is not a game, Jesus is saying. The Pharisees treat it like it's this manageable game. That's like all moralism. Sin can be managed. Holiness can be managed. And that leads us to the second thing, the second deep problem that Jesus is reacting to in their worldview, and it is maybe the most offensive thing, is that they believe that that God can be managed. See, all moralism uh, reduces God. It it thinks that God can be bribed, that God will settle uh, for what we do with our hands or bring with our hands, that he'll settle for the external while we withhold from him and actually embezzle our hearts from him. That God could somehow be fooled by that. That God wouldn't see any uh, more deeply than the surface. That he would be fooled by our disguises. And Jesus is saying, that's a very low view of God. That's why I'm reacting so strongly. The closer, friends, the closer you think that your obedience has gotten you to God, the farther you are from him. God cannot be managed. He can't be manipulated. When you and I think, I mean, this is so, it's crazy when you stop and think about it. I mean, just insane. Do you know that the Voyager 1 spacecraft was launched 37, maybe 38 years ago? And it is still traveling in space at the rate of 38,000 miles an hour. And we're not even sure it has left our solar system yet. Just our solar system is really big. So what makes us think that with our little holiness pinwheels, we can somehow put a chain around God and make him do what we want? Have you ever stopped and thought about how arrogant that is. Do you know when you and I as human beings think that our obedience or our rule keeping is capable of obtaining or maintaining God's approval, you know what we are doing to God? We are, our functional doctrine of God is that he is the monkey on the end of the organ grinder's chain. And as we crank the obedience crank, he goes with his little cup and he gets goodies and he brings them to us. Jesus is not pleased with that implied view of his father. God is not a monkey on the end of our chain. He's the king. 
nor is he a genie that we can rub the bottle for or the lamp for and get him to come out and do our commands according to our obedience, friends. Moralism reduces God. And at the very same time, this is why Jesus is reacting so strongly, and at the very same time, it also trusts very highly in the human heart and says, you know what? My hope is in myself. This is why Jesus is reacting so strongly, because what the Pharisees are doing, which is what every moralistic ambition does, is it cherishes the hope of obtaining or performing a moral record that is good enough on its own, coming from me, coming from you to gain God's approval, to satisfy his standards. Moralism flatters men as it slanders God. It says that men can can create a holiness good enough to reach that great God, and that God's holiness, by the way, isn't that great after all if it's within reach of our performance. Oh, moralism, like the Pharisees, flatters men as it slanders God. Jesus will not take that lightly because what it does is essentially says, hey, the gospel's inside of you, my friend. Just try harder. Do better. We need to be rescued from our hearts, not by our hearts. The human heart is a dead end, my friends. And that's good news. The human heart is a dead end. That's what Jesus is showing us in verses 18 through 20. And he takes us there so that he can finally demolish. He wants us to face the reality. The reality that hope for us does not come from within us, but it comes from without. We cannot hope in our record If there is hope, it is in spite of our record. If there is hope for us, it will not be found in our hearts, but in another heart. In his heart. So it's not on the basis of our record that we're welcomed, nor is it on the basis of our rights, not achievement or entitlement. The good news, friends, we've just got to say this. No one has a right to the grace of God. No one. No one has a right to the grace of God. It wouldn't be grace if they did. By definition, all grace is sovereign grace, meaning that God is totally free to extend it or withhold it. It is not owed by God to anyone. If it were, then it would be owned by the people to whom he owes it. The gospel is offered to the whole world by God, but it is owed by God to no one. That's exactly what we see in the exchange of our Lord with the Canaanite woman. I love this exchange. It is so, you know, first Jesus takes away hope in our record, and then he says to Americans like us, and by the way, you do not have a right to the kingdom of God in yourself. What do you mean I have no rights? The way I think of myself is in terms of a bill of rights. And the Canaanite woman gets it. See, she gets it. She is someone who desperately and freely 
acknowledges that she has no rights before Jesus whatsoever. This episode uh, in verses 21 through 28 is about a boundary line that God establishes in his freedom. The boundary line set and determined by God in his absolute freedom about who enters his kingdom and who does not. He sets the terms we do not. We do not negotiate or barter with God. The woman is not negotiating or bartering with God. This episode is about not the rights of men, but about the rights of God. And that's what we forget. We forget that. It's why the cross does not stun us in the way that it should. We think of the gospel in terms of our rights that we're entitled to the mercy of God, that forgiveness is floating out in the universe like gravity, like it's just there. And of course I wake up to a world in which the forgiveness of my sins is available. But friends, you will never find that taught in God's word. Forgiveness is a miracle. It is not a law of the universe. It is the gift of God's heart. And what makes it so wonderful and astonishing is we don't have any right to it in ourselves. You see, the woman gets that. She gets the freedom of God. Only God can obligate himself to us. You see, here's how moralism works. Moralism says, like the Pharisees, it says, hey, if I do X, then you've got to give me Y. In other words, if I obey or I live in a certain way, then you'll be obligated. I'll put you on the hook. So you have to give me what I want. But friends, men can never obligate God. It doesn't work that way. God can obligate himself. Right? No one can impose an obligation upon God but God. And he has done that by his covenants. And he has done that by his promises. He is not a capricious and arbitrary God. He has told us how he will act, what he will do, how he will respond. And he has done that by his promises and his covenant that he establishes according to his absolute freedom. We can absolutely rely upon and trust those promises, but not because we have somehow bound him to us by our own obedience. It's because he, in his grace and in his mercy, has bound himself to us. And you see, the woman gets this. She understands that she doesn't have any right, and she's not insulted by the freedom of God. She's not insulted. She knows that her appeal to Jesus has nothing to do with what's inside of her and everything and only what is in Jesus' heart. She knows that she has no right to expect anything from Jesus, and yet that she is absolutely right to expect everything from him. She has no right, she knows, to expect anything from him, but is absolutely right to expect everything from him. 
Not because of who she is, but because of who he is. So when he is initially silent, and then he explains to her twice the grounds on which she should not expect to receive his help, that uh, he, his, his ministry is uh, to Israelites, uh, not, to, not to pagans, not to Gentiles. And then when, she says, hey, and when he says, hey, and it's not right for me to give the children's bread uh, to the dogs. He's not talking to her. He's not calling her a dog. He's saying, do you understand? You don't have, you, you don't have any right to my intervention any more than the dogs have right to the children's meal. It's about rights. And she says, I totally agree. I totally agree. But I know that because it's your table, there are crumbs. And your crumb is a feast for me. And I'll take whatever I can get on whatever grounds you want to give it to me because I know something about your heart. You've come to me. I'm appealing to you in boldness now, she is in effect saying, uh, not because I have brought you a record that is deserving, but because you, the Messiah of Israel, the Lord, have left your land and you have approached me. I have come to you because you have first come to me. And my appeal is only an exclusively grounded in your heart, not mine, because I have no rights before you. And Jesus looks at her and says, oh, woman, you get it. Great is your faith. He never says that about the disciples. He never says that about his disciples. In fact, he just got the last time we saw Peter. What did he say to Peter? Oh, you of little faith. This is the guy who actually, the only one of the 12, who said, I want, whatever it takes, Lord, I want to get to you on the Sea of Galilee. And he walked to, walked to Jesus by faith. And Jesus, when he started to sing, Jesus says, oh, oh, you of little faith. He never says, oh, Peter, of once great faith. He never says that. But to this woman, he commends her faith because she understands that she has no right that her only that the, that the approach of a sinner to Jesus Christ is to rely totally on the riches of his heart and zero on the on the abundance of our own see she knows that she has no right this is this is the tension of the gospel right we have no right to expect anything from Jesus Christ but we are absolutely right to expect everything from him because of who he is. Faith expects him to be faithful to who he is. And that brings us to our third point, that the only way a sinner ever gains the welcome of Jesus Christ is because of the unwillingness of Jesus Christ. Now, I need to explain that because I know that's not what you expected me to say. Well, what have we seen in our passage? We've seen that you can't gain the welcome and acceptance of God through Jesus Christ by your record. Jesus has taken that away in the exchange with the Pharisees. You, we don't gain it by, as a matter of our rights. We don't have those. The gospel reminds us of that, right? So the only hope that we have is what Jesus articulates uh, when he feeds the 4,000, and that is his unwillingness uh, to send sinners away faint and hungry. Now, 
You might be wondering, you might be saying, didn't we just get through the feeding of the 5,000 last week? And why is there another feast? And how could the disciples be so clueless? They just saw him provide for the 5,000, and there were 12 baskets left over, and we talked about that last week. So how do we suddenly get to this, this episode, which is right after it in the narrative? I mean, it's so close. It's in the very next chapter. And the disciples respond to the crowd and the need of the crowd as if they're they never saw the feeding of the 5,000. What's going on there? What's Matthew doing? More importantly, what's Jesus doing? Well, this is a totally different feast because the feeding of the 5,000 was for Israelites, but now Jesus is in Gentile territory. He's in Gentile territory. We know that from verse 31, when after he heals all the Gentiles, they respond according to Matthew Matthew's description of their response says that they glorified the God of Israel. That's not what Israelites would say. That's what Gentiles would say. So what's happening here is very dramatically, Jesus is showing his disciples. It's another training mission. Jesus is showing his disciples that he intends that uh, Gentiles, just as much as Jews, will be the beneficiaries of his ministry, that all peoples are equal before him. It's very beautiful and very shocking. And I think this is why Jesus has to say out loud. He calls his disciples to him, and he does what he didn't do in the feeding of the 5,000. It was, his compassion was implicit in the feeding of the 5,000, but now he makes it explicit. He wants his disciples to hear that he actually, he doesn't want there to be any confusion about this, I have compassion on the crowd and I am unwilling to send them away, hungry. It's the unwillingness of Jesus Christ that is the basis for our hope. Friends, Jesus Christ was unwilling for there to be an eternal estrangement between you and God. He was unwilling for you as a sinner to be without a mediator before God. He was unwilling for you to endure eternal separation from God. He was unwilling for you to be without a sympathetic high priest. He was unwilling for you to be under the curse and wrath of God because of your sin. He was unwilling for you to pay the penalty for your sin. He was unwilling for your conscience to remain burdened by your guilt. He was unwilling for you to be a child of wrath rather than a child of God. And he was unwilling for the wonder of his Father's holiness and the wonder of his Father's love to not be celebrated and honored in the world. And because of his unwillingness, he acted. He acted. He acted. And he made himself the death eater. Now, I know we've gone a long time this morning, but I want you to turn with me. Just bear with me for five more minutes, please. I prayed for you today. (laughs) Turn with me to Isaiah 25. God is so strange. He's so... He just blows our stereotypes. This is why we've got to read our Bibles, guys. And read the parts you're not familiar with because when you do, 
boom, he just pops out in his gospel glory. Look at Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. And again, as I said at the beginning of the service, this is the announcement uh, of, the, it's a vision of the, of the final feast at the end of history, this promise. Now notice this. On this mountain, it's a beautiful image, uh, especially if you like wine and red meat, because that's where this is going. He ain't going to bean sprouts. I'm just saying that right now. So learn to grill a steak. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, not just Israel, all the nations, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow. You think the wine's important? Of aged wine, well-refined. Now, that's interesting. So verse 6, you've got a feast awaiting you, right? And you would think we'd be ready to eat. But God is a host unlike any other host. He wants us to watch him eat first. Verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. What an odd host God is. He lays a banquet for us. But before we enjoy his gifts to us and his bounty, he wants us to watch him eat first. And what he shows us he does in this vision is that he swallows up the veil, the curse. In other words, he's going to swallow up death. In other words, he swallows up all the consequences of human sin. See, that's what that's a picture of. That's a picture of man sinning and God absorbing the consequences of our sin. Do you see where that goes? So, and then only when that is fully dealt with can we then feast in the shadowless safety of his love. Now, friends, that's a picture not just of the end time. It's a picture of the mid time. It's a picture of Calvary. You see, there was another mountain, and on that mountain, God began to keep that promise from Isaiah 25, and he swallowed up death there. He began to consume the curse of human sin and all its consequences. And what a wonderful host, because how did he do it? He did it there by being swallowed up by the consequences of our sins. It's one thing for him to absorb the consequences of our sin, which is what we see in Isaiah 25, but that the means by which he would do it would be himself to be the death eater and to be swallowed up by our sin and the judgment our sin deserved, to have the veil that our sin deserved put over him and to be buried in it and then to break forth from those bonds in the power of his resurrection. Friends, Jesus Christ is the death eater. That's the only way that any of us get welcomed. It's by his unwillingness that we would be swallowed up by the consequences of our sin. His unwillingness that that fate would befall us. His heart is resolved 
that that would never happen to any who would trust in him. And you know what? You know what is so amazing this morning? He is still that unwilling for anyone to walk away from him hungry. So if you walk away from Jesus Christ today, your blood is on your head. That's your choice. It is your folly. And if I can be so bold as to say it, unless you turn, it will be your damnation because you can't eat death. Only he can. And he offers himself to you without reserve this morning. Let's pray. Joyful sobriety. Exuberant sobriety. That's our portion this morning. So Lord, take your word and accomplish what you have purposed for it and succeed in everything for which you sent it, I pray in your name. Amen. Please stay.